0: Good morning, brothers and sisters, my family at Pathway, and those who are listening who aren't at Pathway, but are a part of our body as a church. It's a pleasure and honor to be speaking to you. My name is Riley, Riley Smith, and I welcome you all to this recording of the message at Pathway. This morning we are going to talk about humility. Or we're going to be reading from Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And this passage from 6 onwards is likely a Christian hymn. That Paul finds helpful so just starting verse 5 Philippians 2 verse 5 in relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, I thank you for this morning, or not for this morning, but for this opportunity that we have to dive into your word. And I ask that you would guide us, you would help us to uh, see what you are trying to teach us about humility, Uh, what Paul was trying to say here, um, inspired by you, and to recognize just the greatness of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and how he humbled himself. As we walk into the rest of this, uh, please just help us to attune ourselves to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This attitude that Paul is asking us to have is also in Jesus. He is not asking us to do something different or abhorrent to Christ. He is asking us to do something that Christ has already exemplified. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And in verse 6, he says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Existed in the form of God you and I we exist in the form of human My dog Diego exists in the form of a dog. We have ants in our backyard. They exist in the form of ants Jesus exists Existed still exists in the form of God Now I want you to imagine for a second that you've been asked by God to give up your humanness surrender your ability to live The way you do and allow yourself to become an ant as an ant You will now have other bugs and insects. Spiders will be potentially a danger to you. You can now get caught in webs. You will have to scrounge across the ground for food that you wouldn't have even considered eating before. You will grovel for crumbs at the table of your old human companions, and they will be able to smash you under their feet. You will get caught up in pointless wars between ant kingdoms, the red ants and the black ants locked in a battle, a battle which we as humans never even think about, a useless one. You will serve and provide for an ant queen who ruled over you without question before you were an who you ruled over without question, before you were an ant. That's the difference that it would make for us. The shocking thing about this is that despite the clear difference of human and ant, despite that we are made in the image of God and they are not, I am not sure that the analogy of us to ants can even begin to comprehend the gap between us and God. But Jesus, Jesus does not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. How, how is that possible? If you came over to my house, you developed a newly, fantastically horrifying machine called a human to ant transformer and you place it in my living room and an angel came to me, just like an angel came to Mary and said, Riley, You need to go into this machine and be transformed into an ant. I would grasp. I would want to know why. I would want to know what purpose is this for. I would want to double check that this angel really did hear from God. And if I did go, it would not be out of love and joyful obedience, but a grudging, reluctant, dragging my feet, if it can be called that even, obedience. There would be no joy and no humility in that obedience. There would be fear, anxiety, trembling, struggle, but no joy and no humility. I would be grasping, grasping for anything to hold on to, any reason to get out of it. I'm just going to read through six to eight again who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus doesn't grasp. He becomes ant. He becomes human, us. He has the form of a man. So Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is born on earth in a stable, placed in a feeding trough. He has regular human bodily functions. He sweats. He has younger, annoying siblings. His family has a dubious reputation from his mother being pregnant before her and his dad are married. He works as a carpenter or mason, possibly on a recent building project by Herod, a local king. He pays taxes, walks everywhere. He's so far down the leadership hierarchy. No one pays attention to him or knows who he is. The Lord of the universe is living the life of an ant, of a man. Verse 8 And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So not only does he become a human ant, but he also dies as a human. The Lord of the universe dies. But Paul says, not just so, he is obedient, not just to becoming a human, not just to death, but even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. I don't think we can ever truly appreciate the pain and devastation of dying on a cross. But I'm going to summarize it again for you. Not to make you uncomfortable with the gore and the pain or make you sick of your stomach, but so that we would know as a body what it meant for Jesus to humble himself to that level. The cross was incredibly painful and shameful. You are nailed to a cross in each of your wrists, feet, sometimes tied, but in this case nailed. You are in constant pain from the nails holding you on, but you also cannot breathe unless you pull yourself up on these very same nails. You get exhausted. You have no food, no water. You're constantly using your legs and arms to pull yourself up but your muscles begin to ache so badly and it's harder and harder to pull yourself up. And so you begin to slowly suffocate more and more. You cannot breathe. You force yourself up again, but your muscles strain and you're doing this all well naked, completely naked in front of friends, family, your enemies, the general public. Some people come to watch to deliberately see you die. And others come to watch because they love you, and they stand there and they watch you die. They cannot save you. There are people right there, right in front of you, and if they would just save you, but they cannot, they do not. They just watch you. You are alone in front of everyone. They watch you struggle for every breath. And that is why Paul says, even death on a cross. Our Lord and our God humbles himself to be a human and then dies on a cross. The most humiliating way to die, the most painful way to die. The Greek word for humility means to abase, bring low, humble. Jesus is brought in human eyes incredibly low from his throne. And this is Paul's example for us. This is Paul's model of humility that we are to follow. And when we encounter something like this, often our first human reaction is to develop excuses. That, yes, that was for that time, but it just doesn't carry over correctly um, Culture has changed from when this was written. We're almost at a different view, but right now we need to have a little more self-promotion, a little more defensive protectiveness of ourselves. Maybe we need to stand up for our rights, my personal rights when we have conversations. Maybe we need to make sure everyone to know how tough I am. Um, you know, as a man, maybe we need to feel that we're good drivers. We need to defend the fact that we're really good drivers. Um, Or maybe it's how beautiful I am or how handsome or just how put together I am. I have a good life. I can do it. I'm capable. We need to feel certain things. That's how we think. And we think sometimes it's just, this is not a teaching that is really applicable. And we do this with so many different things in scripture. Um, that's always the temptation to try to, to try to twist it and say, yeah, that's applicable here, but it's not for us. But I think we need to just understand how difficult, how hard of a teaching this was in the minds of those Philippians that they're, they're receiving, who are receiving this. I'm going to take you on a short dive into Roman culture. And here's what a secular historian, Tom Holland, says about Roman culture. The more you live in the minds of the Romans, and I think even more the Greeks, the more alien they come to see, the more frightening they come to seem. And what becomes most frightening, really, is a kind of quality of callousness that I think is terrifying, because it is taken completely for granted. There's a kind of innocent quality about it. No one really questions it. Caesar is by some accounts slaughtering a million Gauls and enslaving another million in the cause of boasting his political career and far from feeling in any way embarrassed about this, he's promoting it. And when he holds his triumph, triumph is when you come through the city and Rome. um, It's basically like a parade uh, for a returning general for their victories and everybody's celebrating you. You normally bring all your slaves and your loot through. That's what he's talking about. He says, during this triumph, people are going through the streets of Rome carrying billboards, boasting about how many people he's killed. This is a really terrifying alien world, and the more you look at it, the more you realize that it is built on systematic exploitation. In almost every way, this is a world that is unspeakably cruel to our way of thinking, and this worried me more and more. You would not want to show any sort of weakness in the Roman world to portray yourself potentially as a victim or as weak is a way to portray yourself as someone who is to be taken advantage of, is someone who is to be used to help themselves. Um, If I was betrayed as weak, if I admit a weakness to you, then you're probably gonna use that against me. And that's not wrong. That's just how it is. That's how you live your life. That's what you do. The emperor succeeded Caesar, called Augustus, did the following on bronze tablets in front of a grave monument to himself and had more spread throughout the empire. He takes us through 35 key areas of accomplishment, topic by topic on these bronze tablets. Military victories, public awards, gifts to the city at his own expense, building projects, civic games, and so on. Making sure we know full well of, quote, honor that up to the present day has been decreed to no one besides myself and which had, quote, been given me by the Senate and people of Rome on account of my courage, clemency, justice, and piety. That is how the leaders betrayed themselves in that time. Not with humility. You would never portray any sort of weakness. And this is the world that Jesus enters into. And this is the world that Paul asks to be humble. To allow themselves in that world to be debased, to turn the other cheek, to walk the extra mile, to serve those who are beneath them in social status, to see everyone, regardless of secular society's rankings, as equal people, to not cling to their positions, their honor or their beauty, to not rest on their successes of the works of their hands, would seem utterly strange and foreign, just as that world seems utterly strange and foreign to us. But that is what Paul asks them. He says in verse 3 to 4 of the same chapter as Andrew spoke on last week, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interests of the others. In some ways our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Trinitarian God is so attractive to the people of this world precisely because he humbles himself. A God who would love humans was strange in the ancient world. That was not what gods were expected to do. Our God defies human expectations. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 22. Uh, missed the chapter here. I think it's chapter 2, 22 to 25. Nope, chapter 1. My apologies. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, And to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul knows that this is a stumbling block, that this is hard to see Christ humiliated in that way, to serve a God in that mindset back then of a God who's crucified a God who suffers in the most humiliating way. But that is our God. And our God asks us to follow him into the humiliating, foolish-looking circumstances at times. But it will not compare to what he did still. He has still gone farther. He has still dropped lower from his throne in our eyes than what we could ever drop in the eyes of those around us. He understands what it's like to get shameful looks, to have people look down on you, to be mocked, but he still did it. But why is this beneficial? Why is this wise for us to do? Well, what did did Christ's act of humility have on history? The act of the model of humility, the act of Christ, has a tremendous effect on the course of history. Tom Holland writes, This is why that cross, the ancient implement of torture, because that's what it was, it was an implement of torture, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It is the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe. That serves to explain, more surely than anything else, the sheer strangeness of Christianity and the civilization to which it gave birth. It has completely upended the way we see torture, death as Christians, and how we classify defeat and how we create a society. One writer puts it this way, In antiquity, the cross was an instrument of Rome's brutalizing power to humiliate, humiliate. Now it stands as a symbol of true greatness. And whereas the ancients drew a straight line between greatness and honor, the West draws this line between greatness and humility. And this is among so many people who aren't even Christians who don't even follow our God. But this is what our God asks of us to draw a line between greatness and humility. The great woman or man is the one willing to step down, to hand over, to make a joke at their own expense, not walk through the city or groups of friends gloating over their success and achievements, but to be humble. Brothers and sisters, the act of our savior has undoubtedly saved us from sin and death, has allowed us to live as free, forgiven, saved from the rightful outpouring of our sin, and have a relationship with the God of the universe. But it also, in a quiet, profound way, changed the world in such a way that we have a hard time even comprehending what it is like to live in a society that doesn't recognize Humility is a virtue. It stands as a perpetual reminder to us, just as it was to Paul, of what humility looks like in our lives. And finally, it allows people to approach our God without fear, to know that our God has experienced the lowest of the low. Jesus is attractive, even when the church, even when Christians are not, because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That is an attractive God. Over a year ago now, I knew a teen who was going through a rough patch. So I grabbed some food, met him at his place of work, and we sat down and had lunch with him together. He didn't go into details, but he was going through a rough patch. He felt like he couldn't go back to youth group. He couldn't talk to the youth pastors because if they ever found out what he had done over these past couple of months, they wouldn't accept him. That he would be Um, he could no longer come back into the fold of those who loved him and cared for him at youth and youth group because he was impure. He had messed up. And we walked through that day. I talked to him. I said, no, like they've made mistakes too. You know, I've made mistakes. These other youth have made mistakes that's okay. They'll, bring, they'll accept you. You can go to them, talk to them, explain to them what's gone on, what you're struggling with, and they're going to help you through it. They're not just going to abandon you because you made a mistake. You're clearly, you're repentant. You're trying to work through this. You're trying to do your best. And you're trying to give yourself to God. They're not going to turn you away. And we ended up being able to work through that. But he was only willing to talk to me about this. He wasn't willing to go to them. He was too afraid to go to them. Why? Because they seemed too great for him. They seemed too unapproachable. They seemed too holy. But he knew I was real. He knew I wasn't a perfect person. And it was because he knew that I was imperfect And that I'd made mistakes, I think. He could talk to me. I felt approachable. And he did end up going and having relationships with youth pastors and going to youth again. But to be approachable as Christians, as humans, is so important. Our humility will not have such a big impact as our saviors. But it can inspire people to open up with us. Make us approachable and allow us to build relationships just like Christ. Worrying about how we look in church with our family sitting nicely in a row, or worrying about how people perceive us. Am I perceived as holy? I don't want to look imperfect. I don't want to be seen as a man who struggles with parallel parking. (laughs) I don't want to be seen as someone who has acne problems. I don't want to be seen as a dad who has a bad lawn because dads are supposed to have good lawns. Guys, ladies and gentlemen, friends, brothers, sisters, yes, be holy, be loving, be caring. Yes, seek God and all those things, but do not seek the false appearance of it. Be real about who you are. Be humble, admit your mistakes, even if at times it means that you will get humbled. I think there's there's one more piece to this. Um, It's not just in our actions, but I'll share another story. I was uh, at the National Ministry Conference for Youth for Christ Canada, and I was sitting down at a table with a guy who does a really cool ministry. And what he does is he takes teens from Youth for Christ a drop-in center, and he brings them to a local church on Sunday morning, and they sit in the back. And he has all sorts of crazy stories about what that looks like for them, and the different shenanigans that have happened. But as part of that, he uh, they would have after church, they'd go back to somebody's house uh, if they were invited over. They often were invited over by some members of the church. Very welcoming church. And they'd sit down with these local youth from Youth for Christ and with the hosts and, and the Youth for Christ worker, and they'd have conversations. And a Youth for Christ worker, or, and the host asked one of the teens, he said, so if you could have any sermon preached from the pulpit, what would it be? And the youth says, what do you mean? And he says, well, you know, when the preacher goes up and he preaches, if that, if that sermon that he preaches could be about anything you want, what would, what would you want it to be on? And the teen again says, what do you mean? <laughs> and the Youth for Christ worker, he steps in then and he says, so what, I'm, what he's saying is, is, you know when the guy at church goes up to the front and he talks for a little while? about something from the Bible? He's like, "Yep." Yeah. Well, if he could talk about anything that you wanted, what would that be? And the youth responds, well, why didn't he just say that? <laughs> With a few extra um, colorful language added in. And <laughs> when he asks that question, it's just a reminder to all of us to speak to them in a way that they understand. That host meant good. That host genuinely wanted to speak to this teen to learn about what he wanted to hear about from the pulpit, but we can still learn from him. How we talk to people matters. Don't try to sound sophisticated. Don't try to sound more country-like or more city-like or more Christian when we talk to someone, try to meet them on their level. When you meet someone on the street, when you talk to someone, don't feel the need to impress them with our words. We need to welcome them and make them feel loved with our words. If you're worried, they might not understand you start off simply first. Yes, you might be humbled by the fact that they can understand you. And now you feel like you don't look as smart as you actually are or something. I don't know. That's not the point. Make them feel loved and welcomed. Don't sweat it if you talk to some super scientist and they start talking about quantum physics and you realize you can't talk to that level. That's okay. But I hope if that super scientist is a Christian that they'll explain it at your level as best they can. We need to talk about joy for a little bit. And I admit that when I first, this is, you know, we're talking about joy because it's Philippians and I'm kind of look at this passage and the word joy isn't used in it. And I'm like, where, where is joy in humility? Because honestly, I think humility is often not a very joyful experience. And I think of a time I uh, went off to Steinbeck Bible College my first year after school. And I had always had my fair share of leadership opportunities. I kind of thought of myself as a leader in my church and my youth group. And it formed a core part of my identity, but I didn't realize that. I wouldn't have seen it if you had mentioned that to me. And so at Steinbeck Bible College, we're going to go on our first uh, mission exposure trip. We go into Winnipeg for like a week and a half or something like that. And we build relationships there and we try to share the gospel with people and help people and we find out that we're going to be in small groups and each group will have a leader and these small groups are small like there are four people or something per group and the names of the leaders get chosen some of my best friends at college got chosen Sophia my wife got chosen but I wasn't chosen and man looking back at it is so embarrassing but I was pathetic about it I grasped so hard for that position, even though I knew I couldn't have it. I couldn't be happy for my friends. It strained my relationship with my then-girlfriend, Sophia. I talked to the guys, Dean, about how hard it was for me not to be chosen, and I was bitter about it. Now, it was clear to all of you, as it is to me now, and as it was to me probably even a couple months after that, that I was not acting humble at all. I was grasping, I was trying to get a hold on or get a leadership position. I was unwilling to accept the idea that that leadership position wasn't for me. There was no joy in that. There is rarely joy in humbling ourselves as Christ did, letting go of that perfect job, admitting you made a mistake, letting yourself look imperfect, appear imperfect in front of others. Not having a perfect house or a lawn or whatever when friends come over. Not having that thing that you cling to as a status symbol because times got tough and you had to sell it. Or making a mistake uh, in an area that you always felt you had pride in, whether it's driving or your job or your acrobatic abilities, I don't know. Rarely is it enjoyable to give those things up. They're hard things to give up. But just like all sin is so often hard to give up, it hurts. We enjoy it. We like to use it as a crutch. For these things that we are talking about today, these are also the things we take pride in. Things that sometimes form a core part of our identity. But we need to be willing to give them up as well, to humble ourselves for Christ. It is painful. It was hard, however petty that seems now, to let go of that small group leader position in college. But if I had done it right away, I would have felt far more joy. What I mean is this, I would have learned more in my mission exposure class. I wouldn't have struggled through bitterness with my friends and Sophia, but built deeper, more meaningful relationships. I would have been able to focus on my prayer life on things that actually mattered. And all this to say that giving up that grasping, that pride, would have brought me closer to Christ, and that would have given me joy. The giving up, the humbling of oneself, the letting go of our pride, opens us up to more of Christ. We Remove an artificial barrier that we are putting between ourselves and Christ. Paul writes in Romans 15:13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. 1 Peter 1, 8-9 Though you who have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe, that is, have faith in, to entrust, commit to, in him, and are filled with an inex- inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says, you believe, which can also mean have faith in and trust, commit to, and then you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Being humble brings us joy because it brings us closer to Christ. It is in Christ that we are to find joy But if we uh, look to other things to experience it, we won't get it and we won't find it in Christ. Beyond this, we ultimately are humble for one of the same reasons as Christ. Finishing off this passage that we're working through, Philippians 2 verse nine. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do we want? We want that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are humble for that reason.